0: Welcome to The Human Side of Cyber, a Meritalking podcast. I'm Nicole Burdett. Endpoint devices, whether personal or government-issued, are increasingly used outside of the network perimeter. Maintaining the security of these devices from any location all the time is a top priority for every federal CIO. Today, we'll talk about endpoint security, what it is, what it isn't, and how agencies can enhance their security measures to gain the visibility, the control, and the accurate intelligence needed to remediate potential risks. We'll explore if agencies have the tools in place to combat today's advanced threats. And I think this is an interesting question. If federal IT teams have too many endpoint security tools, is the security environment getting too complex? Before we begin, I'd like to thank Tanium for underwriting our Human Side of Cyber series and today's program, where we get to chat with Sam Kinch, Director, Technical Account Management at Tanium. Welcome, Sam. Can you share a little bit about yourself and your background with our audience?
1: Certainly, Nicole, thank you. My background sources from 30 years in the military. In fact, I only recently retired last year and joined Titanium after my retirement. Prior, like during the last few years of my active duty time, I worked with Cyber Command and Department of Homeland Security, supporting multiple different efforts, mostly offensive cybersecurity, so focused on offensive cyber operations. And the defensive side really plays a part into that I do see a great synergy between knowing the offensive capabilities of what we do and how actors do business. Malicious cyber actors will affect their targets. In enabling the defensive side of what we do day in and day out, the defensive side is so much harder. And that was the beauty of my last year was spending that time focused with Department of Homeland Security working on defending against cyber threats to the COVID-19 manufacturing and distribution facilities, working primarily in their threat hunt area of CISA.
0: Thank you. Obviously, you'll be able to pull in some great experience and and perspectives from all of the above. So we really appreciate your time and we, we know our audience does as well. So let's start at the top. How do you define endpoint security and how does it fit in today's security landscape?
1: Endpoint security is one of those, I think it's the Achilles heel of any enterprise, architecture. We've done a great job within industry of creating solutions for problems. And I think that endpoints were one of the first problem sets that we tackled, but then was forgotten. And what's happened nowadays is we've seen, and we'll probably touch on this in a little bit in more detail, but we've really seen an influx, like you said at the beginning, of many endpoint solutions being utilized on those devices that really aren't capable of handling that many solutions at one time. On top of that, you have a mixed bag across the civilian and the government networks, where we see endpoints that are either underperforming because they're not being life-cycled fast enough, and that's usually because of funding. In fact, most organizations, governments, no exception, in fact, I would say they're even a little bit more strict on the funding despite what people would say. And you'll see older systems in those networks. And the problem with those older systems is the complexity of new software, that's security software, the number of endpoint software solutions that are being put on these endpoints all provides complexity and makes it really challenging from a defender in multiple different ways. And not just the defender, but the user of those products. And to complicate those matters, you got to throw in the buzzword bingo that's out there. You have products called XDR and EDR and just AV in general, the broad spectrum of next gen AV and AI artificial intelligence being thrown around and machine learning. So when you start adding up all those different products, it becomes very complicated. I would say that primarily the security landscape is troubled by the number of products that you alluded to at the beginning being put onto an endpoint. The lack, and fundamentally, the fact that it's being turned on, and then my issue is they're not tuned properly. The theory is that you'll turn on these security products and I'm more secure. In actuality, what happens is you turn on all these security products, you fail to tune the security products with each other along with the computer, and now you end up with an environment that is probably going to be less efficient if not completely has a lack of performance capability so the end user starts complaining and doesn't even do their work. Forget about the fact that you might be more secure. If you don't have a balance with the end user being able to do the work that they're assigned to, now you get in a very difficult situation. And this is something we're seeing across commercial and government enterprises.
0: You know, it sounds like that failure to tune the tools appropriately might be one of the major points of confusion out there, which kind of brings us to our next question. Are there any others that you would point to? Any other common mischaracterations or points of confusion when it comes to endpoint security? You know, what it means, what it does, or how you make it work optimally?
1: That, that is a great question. And it really kind of ties back to the last question very well. In an example I can use, uh, if you picture any medium to large business that's out there, That business most likely will have some form of enterprise network. On top of that, you might have a CISO. On top of that, you might have a large budget that goes along with all that. So you have this enterprise net, you have a CISO who's responsible for it, you have a budget that they are applying to it. The budget, and from days gone past, IT in particular has been under-resourced, and that's been a challenge. So the budget is always a challenge to validate not only return on investment, and that also is more pronounced, I would say, in a public company than it is a private company. But they have this whole need for cybersecurity. So because it's an enterprise-sized network, and because they have a responsibility to run it, they need the cybersecurity tools. So they do. They go and drop on a network access solution. They drop on endpoint solutions of many different facets because they need to hit this button and they need to hit this button and they need to do this thing as well. For instance, I need antivirus because that's the expectation or that's a compliance requirement. In the government, we have stigs that we have to meet. Those are standards that the government has to meet for certain types of software that's on their systems or hardware. When you combine all that, it means that you have a very challenging environment, a very confusing and somewhat frustrating, I would say, for the technicians. Because if you think about what happens when you do that, you have these endpoints, you apply these different products. For each product, it requires training. And now you either have to hire somebody new for that new product, or pay for support for that new product, or you have to learn that new product yourself. And what that does is cause frustration in some respects, and then also delays. Because a lot of times, just getting to know the product and making it work is your priority. The next thing is, where do you go after the tuning process? And then how does that happen effectively on an endpoint?
0: Great questions and great points. And you're bringing up quite a few things as we go through the conversation that link to what our series is focused on, which is the human side of cyber, as we talk about all of the tools and the processes as well. You know, along these lines, we know, obviously, that the pandemic has shifted how and where people are working. How has that changed the threat landscape from your perspective? And do you believe the changes are permanent? Do you think that these changes are continuing to evolve today?
1: Wow. I would say the last three years have been, like everybody is aware of, very yeah. eye-opening. And it's not just been a challenge. In fact, in the military, and from my military experience, we go through our operations with the mindset that no plan survives first contact, which means that you can develop the best plan in the world to go out and fight this enemy. In our case, it's you know, malicious cyber actors. But as soon as you push go, or as soon as you cross that start line, everything falls apart, which it's kind of an exaggeration, but somewhat true. That plan has to be able to mold, shift, and adjust. And so what we saw with the pandemic was that large shift of the populace from work, which we know is in a concrete brick building that people go to and then leave and then go home. While we did have the concept of remote work, and there was some inkling that it might be cheaper for businesses, most businesses weren't willing to go down that road before the pandemic because it seemed like not the right thing. It seemed counterintuitive. I'm gonna have my folks at home, they're gonna do less work and I'm not gonna be as productive as a business. But what we saw, I think, and i think what most businesses saw, including Tanium, who went fully remote at the start of the pandemic and is not looking back. We've seen that our organizational structures actually thrived under that. When you provide a better work-life balance, it did take some time getting used to and it took some education on the appropriateness for how to use devices, whether it's your laptop or your home laptop or your bring your own device like your cell phone. What does that really mean for an organization? And there were a lot of challenges and costs that went into transitioning to a remote workforce, but those challenges are not going away. I believe what we're seeing is traditional work environment where you would go into an office has morphed into something hybrid. Some organizations like Tanium have gone full remote and brought their employees to their home and told them they can work from home as long as they can support their customer. Productivity is defined by slightly different variables than being in the office. And you know, I'm in the office at eight, I leave at five or whatever. I think the hybrid model is really where a lot of companies are going, where especially you'll see this in government quite a bit, where their employees will come in for a couple of days a week, and then the other days they're at home. And this allows them to have a balance between pandemic-related fears, concerns, but there's also some cost savings involved as well. And that's been a huge bonus, I think, the businesses to realize that they can do this. I think some families are kind of frustrated sometimes when schools are doing this too. And I'll digress for a second. When you have a school that we get, let's say, three or four inches of snow and they have a snow day, well, they're still working from home because now they're fully remote and they can do it. In businesses, it's kind of the same thing. It can be a snow day and I can have six inches of snow outside, but I'm still working from home, so I still am expected to be at work. So that landscape, I think, is something permanent. I think we're going to see that shift to a hybrid model, though, is more of the permanent function. I don't think people always stay fully remote. Some businesses will, some will not. I don't think you'll see a model that's traditionally everybody goes into an office building. And I think that's, now looping this back to the cybersecurity part, that is where some great challenges have come into play. Because how do you have underperformance systems now remote, now under network constrictions that sometimes cause problems with the screen sharing or the uh, conversations with people on teams or whatever product you're using to have that collaboration with your team?
0: I'd like to talk just for a moment about a topic you mentioned earlier, which is resourcing and budgeting for cyber within government. Are there resources, whether that's staff, tools, all of this goes back to funding, obviously, that agency IT leaders need to strengthen endpoint security today and cybersecurity in general that they don't have? And where do you think some of those needs are?
1: That topic has come to light, especially over the last probably six to 12 months. The initial push with the pandemic as an example of how this led up to some challenges and strengthening of Endpoint security, which has been on the forefront of a lot of people, really resulted because we had this big push to push people outside the traditional work boundary. So now with all these endpoints that are outside the traditional defensive structure, cyber defense structure of firewalls and, and other gateways that businesses, physical presence of a business can provide, now they're everybody's work from home or work on the road or they're on their phone. This is ultimately one of the most fundamental things that businesses have to look at is, is my budgetary constraints or efforts being levied in the right areas? I would say that while I can't make those decisions for any particular business, a business has to, what I can talk to specifically would be the recognition that businesses tend to be under-resourced. So there's that do more with less mentality. And so from a tainting perspective, when we go in and look at an organizational structure, we look for ways to, I would say, merge or consolidate those resource constraints that those organizations have. I'll use an example. If you had a business and it was a medium to large size, you had all those endpoint solutions, where are ways that we, like, for instance, Tanium has multiple solution areas within the realm of patching or compliance. When you take multiple softwares, we talked about this earlier, it takes multiple technicians. It takes a lot of time to train on each one of those capabilities and they're not easy to learn. I mean, no endpoint solution, especially a cybersecurity one is gonna be easy to learn. It's not something you can watch a video on and be an expert on it. It does take time, if not months, if not years to be effective at doing that job. But now we talked earlier as well about the tuning aspect. So Tanium comes in and you have one solution for multiple things, Now you can start to consolidate those multiple things under one umbrella with one tool to learn, one capability. That's where you can have a cost savings. And I think that a tool like Tanium is extremely important for consolidating resource capability because you have fewer people to do that many things. It reduces the time to actually effectiveness for that tool. The biggest thing, though, is I'm not a big fan of putting all my tools into one basket. And so I'll bring this to light, as this is, I would say, one of the areas that organizations really need to focus on. There is a balance between having a dozen different tools overlapping in what they do. But I do think there is value in having a couple tools that are done well, but that are tuned to be effective on the endpoint that can really provide that security of boundary I think we need on endpoints because they're outside the traditional business, firewall structure and all that. If you have a couple tools and by tuning, what I'm looking at is you can't just take package or a solution A and solution B, install them on your endpoints, turn them on, flip the switch and say, you're good to go. You should run. What tends to happen, especially with antivirus solutions, antivirus solutions are designed to look for nefarious activity, in areas that we as humans can't process that fast. We're not going to go into a software program and, see, and watch how it's running while we're using it. So the antivirus program is doing things like what we call injecting into that software to see if there's any nefarious activity going on. Well, anytime that, that tool will inject into a process, it can create latency depending on how it's designed. So now if you have cybersecurity software A and cybersecurity software B that happens to be an antivirus, the B software, the antivirus, is going to look at the other cybersecurity software and go, wow, you might actually be doing something that's malicious because you're doing stuff with system rights or with admin rights. You're doing stuff that a traditional user might not do because that's what cybersecurity software A is supposed to do. It's supposed to be, for instance, patching your software. So it's going to be uninstalling software and installing software. Well, sometimes that could be treated as malicious if you have other indicators. It could be looking at your compliance to meet specific standards. And if that compliance requires that software to kind of scan across infrastructure, looking at different software versionings, sometimes that can look from an antivirus perspective as being something nefarious as an actor might do, which is look across your network, finding gaps and vulnerabilities that it can exploit. So what you have to do in the tuning process is look at both softwares and say, we trust what these softwares are doing. And so therefore, I'm going to take software A, and I'm going to ensure it knows software B is a friendly person, so or a friendly piece of software, and provide exclusions for certain things that it does, whether it's the processes that it's running, the executable that's on the, the actual disk, the physical disk. And then I'm going to do the same thing for software B. And when you effectively tune both of those softwares, they're not going to be bothering each other, but they're going to be able to do their jobs effectively. I also like the concept of having multiple softwares, maybe not doing the exact same thing, but just keeping an eye on each other. Because I think there is some benefit from a triage perspective when you're looking at remediation of an actual exploit or an event to say, well, that one software was compromised and we saw this with SolarWinds if all you're using is one particular piece of software and that software gets compromised, now you're done. But if you can have a couple pieces of software watching each other, looking at what each other are doing, but also being able to do their job, now you have an overlapping, in the military we call it overlapping fields of fire, where I have one person on the left who can see across some of the terrain on the person on the right so that they can help defend that terrain and overlap those sectors so that they are more effective at what they do at defending. If one person gets taken out, it's okay because I have other ones backing them up. And we should do the same thing with cybersecurity software, but not to the extent where we have so many softwares that aren't tuned on an endpoint that we shoot ourselves in the foot. And this gets, by the way, exponentially worse when you have individual defenders within a business who just throw something on a box that they downloaded from GitHub because it's supposed to defend them, for instance, against log4j. I'll throw a little analogy out there. What we've seen at Tanium side of the house was there are some great PowerShell scripts out there. And if you take them that were looking for log4j vulnerabilities, for instance, that log4shell exploit, exploitable platform. And what happened was the individual would download the script and they would run it on a particular box. It would find stuff and they're like, dude, this is great. Let's run this across the enterprise. When you take one script that doesn't have any throttling or any controls built in to keep CPU or the processor or memory down low so that the end user can do work, what can happen is that one script, as it's churning through looking at a particular computer, can use up all those resources. And it might use it up for like 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so. That's fine maybe on one box, but now you start layering that across the enterprise and now you've created a lot of congestion and a lot of noise and a lot of hurts basically on those end users to prevent them from doing their work. And that's a challenge. So I would say to your question, the strengthening endpoint security, what we don't have today, I think what we really need is a focus on the endpoint solutions that we have. Identify ones that can help each other without doing the exact same job. A staff should not have multiple things of the same thing on their endpoint. They need to find what's most effective at doing the job and what's fast. If you don't have something on your endpoint that can patch your systems within hours, then you're probably not in a good position, especially these days when actors are moving in minutes across enterprises, and that's even being gracious. The automated nature of how we do cyber, especially on the malicious side, like the offensive security side, it's exponentially faster than it used to be. And the defenders, while we're understaffed and under-resourced, we tend to be overburdened and trying to play catch up a lot. And so the faster we can solve the basics of cyber hygiene, patching those systems, tuning those systems becoming effective at the tools that we do have on them and not burdening our technicians with having to learn a whole bunch of different tools. That's where we're going to find effectiveness. That's where we're going to find efficiency within corporations.
0: I think you just gave a really great, very concise summary of of some advice for IT leaders within agencies. Is there anything else, any other piece of advice that you would offer for agency IT leaders that are are working to strengthen their security ecosystem and their endpoint security?
1: In work environments, there's sometimes a frustration with individual personalities. One of the things I always try to do is I step back. When I feel something's going on that sounds like, or feels like, or it looks like it's a personality-driven event, where emotions are coming into play, I think for cybersecurity, it's extremely important that we take this perspective. And that is, we step back and we ask ourselves, inside voice now, is that something they intentionally did to hurt our company? The true nature of insider threats, they're not that many. But there's usually some very standard things to look for for that. So that's not what I'm talking about. It's not the insider threat. It's just the personality and the emotions that come into cybersecurity. And so what happens and We've seen this a lot more recently. Is a situation where a cybersecurity threat is known. Log4j is a great one, SolarWinds, the last Google Chrome zero day that just came out. These are things that are immediate that require immediate focus by the company to deal with. So they have, especially in larger enterprises with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of endpoints, it's extremely important that the software that they're using. For instance, to patch their systems, to go after that vulnerability and to solve that problem, it has to have extreme speed. So, within minutes, if not hours, of being compliant, fixing that problem, and it has to scale up to those hundreds of thousands, if not millions of endpoints. That's something that is very important for any company, any organization that is going to survive the next generation of malicious actors. What I look at is I step back when I'm having those conversations with those individuals and I I ask myself, is this personality issue, is that something that they're intentionally doing to hurt the company? 99.99% of the time, it's not. It is a situation where that person was trying to do the right thing to protect their enterprise and maybe they screwed up a script that they were writing to protect the company In doing so, they created some sort of denial of service, or they caused performance issues with CPU or processor spiking and memory issues. However temporary it is, I think the biggest pain point is to recognize for any company right now is to recognize that everybody that is part of the company, every piece of software had a human behind it. Every leadership position is not just your boss, it's a human being, and we all make mistakes. And so the recognition that people normally, sane people do not intend to cause harm on their company or other companies for that matter. Now, you can talk about business competition. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about internal to a particular company. So if you have multiple pieces of software on your system and you have people trying to manage them and somebody screws up, I think the biggest thing that IT leaders can do is step back and realize that it is a human-created product that's going to have failures, whether it's a software, a poorly designed engineer, or a poorly designed piece of software, just needs to be fixed. Most software companies out there are extremely good at coming up with solutions for identified problems. So giving that software time to fix those solutions is always a plus. Recognizing that humans are human and will make mistakes, and those mistakes just have to be treated with Whatever the situation is, it shouldn't be treated like an intentional harm to the company, but something that is just, okay, let's see how we can fix this. What can we do to not make that mistake again? But the other pain point I think that's self-inflicted is what we talked about and alluded to through this whole conversation. And that's just the concept that regardless of how many products you put on your systems, you as an organizational, as an IT leader, you're responsible for tuning those Sensors, those software bundles, the systems, even the hardware sometimes against not just what they do as an individual system, but to each other. So, software against, like we talked about before, software A has to be tuned against software B. If exclusions are required, we got to take ownership as an organization and apply those exclusions. And if we don't do that, we can't put that blame on anybody else but ourselves. Because it really was our failure if we don't take the time to train our folks, take the time to tune that software. And that's one thing where if I can foot stomp anything here, the tuning part, and then reviewing the software portfolio that you have, and streamline that portfolio to what software provides the biggest effect, it might not be the cheapest software. But if you look at it and you go, well, that software, A, can do multiple things. And it does cost a little bit more, but if I can cross off a bunch of other software because it's just overlapping what that software A does, then that's a great thing. What you'll probably end up finding is that you're going to be more secure, you're going to have more streamlined software, less software within your environment, less cybersecurity software, and then you have more time to effectively tune it so that your end users have that balance of, I do know, and this is where something that sometimes people they misunderstand what's actually happening on their systems. As long as the end user can see that their system is running well, and as long as that system running well is effectively providing the cybersecurity for that organization, you have that tuning done right. You have that balance between the two. I think General Skinner actually, as the director of DISA, as the commander of Joint Force Headquarters, Doden under Cyber Command, He said it really well a couple of months ago in a podcast. He was talking about how he would never expect an end user to not have cybersecurity software on their system. I'm not quoting this. It's just the concept is what I'm talking about here. But he also said, if a cybersecurity software is being utilized on those systems, we have to balance that with the end user so that they can do their job effectively but that we can be more or the most secure we can be without impacting that end user greatly. It's not that we're not going to impact them. Their system might be more taxed because of the software, but that end user, as long as they can do their job, shouldn't have to worry that the security of their their computer is compromised in any way because we have the right tools on there to do the job. They're streamlined, they're tuned. One thing I didn't touch on though, that is probably a pain point I mentioned it at the very beginning, but didn't really dig into it. And that has to do with hardware. I would argue that one of the biggest pain points is the bureaucracy that sometimes plays out in larger corporations and government, where the hardware that the individual end users are using is underutilized and underperformant. We live in an age where software is being refactored and changed and updated on a daily basis where smartphones have planned obsolescence, where if you go 18 months with your same phone, it's likely that you're gonna start seeing some degradation of performance. Your apps don't open as quickly. You're more likely to get burned by lack of space because of all the pictures you haven't downloaded. But really the performance of that device is under spec for the software. And most likely if you keep your phone long enough, and that's usually only two to three years, You're going to start having apps that say, you have to upgrade your device. We're not built to perform at that particular level of the software that you're running. And so therefore, it won't let you run that software. The problem is we don't translate that and recognize that that is an issue with corporations. And so the hardware kind of gets a a black eye of sorts because it's challenged and it's not being upgraded. So I would say a pain point that really needs focus is that we can't expect these really good cybersecurity products to run on systems that weren't made for it. When we do that, what happens is the end user suffers, they complain, their boss gets frustrated because their end users are complaining because they have high CPU. And then it becomes, who do we blame for that issue? They blame the software. Well, the software is not working right. Well, sure, I'm sure there's some tuning like we alluded to earlier that needs to be done. But then in the end, there's only so much tuning you can do if you still have a six-year-old laptop that's running a spinner disk, those physical hard drives that are spinning around versus solid state. Honestly, it's insane the performance increase you get just from increasing to a solid state disk, which in today's day and age, the cost is negligible to what it used to be. It used to be a thing where it used to be very expensive. Now it's not. I would argue that if any organization wants to see some improvement on top of the tuning and uh, the software streamlining to products that actually work and work fast and at scale, there's one other thing that usually gets forgotten. And I will say that it has kind of been the, um, the bane of most IT individuals' existence, and that's the underperforming hardware. And if they could spend a little money and just update their systems every three to four years, even would be a huge benefit if they don't want to upgrade their laptop their whole thing just swap out the hard drive the performance increase just in a hard drive is astronomical so i said a lot um, i covered on a lot of different things my biggest focus would be identifying the software streamlining that tuning those systems to the best extent possible tuning meaning making sure that those software have the exclusions in place to work together effectively and then lastly look at the hardware see if there's any type of upgrades you can do to make your systems more performant and actually run the software at a performant level that is expected and not kind of a hamstrung or other level.
0: Sam, thank you again. You've covered a a ton of of ground and I think given everyone in our audience a, a lot to think about. So we appreciate it. Hope you can join us again soon. To everyone listening, thank you. Please take a moment to subscribe to Meritalking and stay tuned for the next episode of the human side of cyber with Tanium.